Hi, welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Jake Thomas. On a windy and rainy day in January, a crowd rallied at the Slocum House in Esther Short Park. The cause for the rally was news that Governor Jay Inslee had rejected Vancouver Energy's proposal to build the nation's largest crude-by-rail oil terminal at the Port of Vancouver. The development is the latest in the proposed terminal's long saga. So what exactly does the governor's decision mean? How did we get here? And is it possible to revive the controversial project? To answer these questions, reporter Katie Sword and I turn to the Colombian's Damien Pisanti, who's been covering this story. Later in the podcast, we talk with Debbie Sanders, a professor of accounting at WSU Vancouver, about what the federal tax overhaul might mean for you. We finish up with a conversation about murder in Clark County with Colombian reporter Jersey Shedlock. Colombian environment and transportation reporter and returning champion Damien Pizzanti. The one and only. Hey, you guys. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. So what did the governor do um, regarding the oil, proposed oil terminal at the Port of Vancouver? So funny you ask that, Jake. Man, it has been quite the week on my beat. Um, so Governor Jay Inslee, I think, surprised everybody by dropping a pretty sizable bomb in my lap on Monday morning. He had 60 days to make a decision on the Vancouver Energy Oil Terminal starting about the, I think it was the 19th of December. So I was expecting not to hear anything from him until mid-February. But on Monday, he sent a letter to FSEC, the Energy Facility Site Evaluation Council, the state body that has been considering the Vancouver Energy Oil Terminal for the last four years. Um, he sent them a letter saying that he's going to deny that project's site certification application, which basically that means that he said you can't build their oil terminal in Vancouver. Sorry. So you say this is surprising, but this is the governor, Governor Jay Inslee, who wants a carbon tax in Washington. Let He's... me clarify that statement. It was surprising that he did it so early because he only did it about halfway through his allotted 60-day window to do so. I was sort of expecting like a last-minute drop, but I don't think the outcome was a surprise. So where does the port of Vancouver currently stand on the proposed oil terminal? The port itself? Yes. So um, anybody who listens to this podcast probably knows that we had a very wild election this last go around, which gave us the council that we have today, which has two um, very, very staunchly anti-terminal uh, commissioners sitting on it right now. And who, who are they? Uh, Eric LeBrant and Don Orange. Both of those guys ran uh, four years apart to get this oil terminal just off the table and they succeeded so anyway in a nutshell right now the port of vancouver um made march 31st the final day for the for vancouver energy to have everything it needs in hand to legally and effectively run this oil terminal and that's interesting because before they made that decision on uh, January 9th, their first port meeting, they Vancouver Energy had a rolling lease with the port, basically saying like, hey, every three months, this lease is just going to automatically renew and you're going to have all the time you need to get all the federal and state paperwork you have to get to make this happen. But this time the port put their foot down and that made a real, that, that put up a real shot clock. And so, you know, Basically, this this terminal's. I there's no way that it's going to get built at this point. 
So this has been going on for quite some time, this conversation about the terminal and what's going to happen. Can you take us back to the beginning and how this all started? Oh, man, this has been going on a long time. This has been going on longer than any of us three in this room who've been working at this newspaper. This terminal was first proposed in early February 2013 under some very shady circumstances. Uh, the port at that point uh, had several closed-door meetings with Vancouver Energy executives, which at that point was not Vancouver Energy. It was Tesoro Corp and Savage Co. Uh, Tesoro, who is now Endeavor, a large you know, oil company, and Savage, a giant logistics company. Well, not giant, but very large logistics company based out of Utah. And they started proposing this terminal. It, you know, unbeknownst to anybody around them, and they very much surprised uh, the community and I think the state. And through some very dogged reporting of our predecessors, we got a hold of it and found out that this terminal was underway. So anyway, it came to, um, it, because it was such a large project, it needed state approval. They just couldn't build it outright without the state being involved. And so the FSEC, Energy Facility Site Evaluation Council, who I just mentioned, in the summer of 2013 began considering this project. Usually those evaluations take a year, but because this is the first oil terminal that relatively small staff has ever considered, and it was such a massive project, the largest crude by rail terminal in the US, uh, it took them four years to consider it. Uh, there were also several other reasons why it took so long, one of them being that uh, Tesoro's application was so bad the first go-around that they had to submit an entirely new one and effectively start the whole <clears throat> process over. And all that work everybody put into evaluating it just went out the window. So, I mean, this has been a long fight, and it's really defined a lot of local politics around here. I mean, it's what got Eric, it's what inspired Eric LeBrant to run for office and replace one of the former commissioners who was very gung-ho for this project. And it's also obviously what got Don Orange around. It's the reason why this group, the Vancouver 101, it was literally 101 small businesses in Vancouver that were organized against this project, which Don Orange, current commissioner, was one of the driving forces behind forming. Um, you know, this is, and it's drawn interest from um, communities all across the Columbia River Gorge, up into Spokane, and out to Astoria. Anybody with a dog in the fight along the Columbia River or even anywhere along these railways started to watch this thing. Like this is a very, very significant project. It's been a really big issue for the community here. You're either you know for or against. That was certainly evidenced in the last election with Chris Green and Don Orange. Mm -hmm. you know, people who supported Green were mm -hmm. pro, people who were orange were against. Uh, what would you say though, the, I mean, when you br break it all down, what's the core issue at play here? Um, well, I think that really depends on who you ask. You know, I, but I, from my perspective, the core issue is the terminal itself. But your perception of the terminal, um, or I, I think your vision for what this terminal could bring, um, really colors how you colors your feelings about this project itself. For some people, it was turning Vancouver into an oil town and bringing. Uh, ticking time bombs, i.e. mile-long oil trains, into Vancouver on a daily basis and risking the health and safety of not only the community, but also the health and well-being of the Columbia River and the Pacific Ocean. If you like this project, this is a chance to bring $2 billion worth of state 
taxes and wages and profits into the community and put a huge shot in the arm for blue collar workers around here. I mean, labor unions were very much for, for this project because they wanted to build it. Um, a lot of pro-business types around the city also were for it just because it meant more money in the community. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like developers like Barry Kane along the waterfront, he did not like this project because he didn't want oil trains rolling by, by his sweet new development, <clears throat> which he's dumped a billion and a half dollars into. And so, yeah, I would say your issues with this project really depended on what side of this, what side of the fence you were standing on. But it, it colored everything around here. I mean, it was an issue in local politics. It was an issue in city politics, obviously one in uh, the ports politics, and it, it really brought out a lot of passions in the community. So this has been a, a long process, but has this been a normal process for projects like these? Um, so I guess it sort of depends on your definition of the word normal. Uh, no, it was normal in that it went through the uh, it went through the FSEC process, the state evaluation process, because it's so large and it had such statewide significance that yeah, it would be normal for it to go through that project. It's very rare anymore that we have pro energy projects so big uh, being proposed around the state that they actually get to that level of evaluation. It was very abnormal that it takes four years to consider the project. Uh, that's highly unusual. State law says it only takes one year. So the fact that it got to that point was huge. Um, but this, these were really unique times we're living in. I think to take a step back, we have to remember that this project was really sort of a, I'm reluctant to use the word symptom, but a symptom of what was going on on a more, on a national scale with our own like domestic energy development. I mean, there was this explosion, oil was super expensive at a certain point in time. When this project was first proposed, oil was at more than $100 a barrel. And oil development was exploding in the Midwest around North Dakota and up in Alaska, and up in um, Saskatchewan and Canada. And so there were like multiple oil projects proposed all along the West Coast because those are, those were landlocked resources. Well, the Pacific Northwest is just a train ride away from like all these West Coast refineries. And so this was a symptom of a larger national production. Um, every one of those projects now has been shot down. Um, all the other oil terminals projects were killed. The ones that were approved around the state were projects that were already here and they already had the permitting in place and all they wanted to do was expand. But as far as the new projects go, this is like the last one to die. So is this over? Is there a next chapter? Well, um, you know, it's not over. It's not, it's not over yet. We got another month before we're going to know if this is actually over or not, because now that the governor has said, has made his decision that no, you can't build this. Vancouver Energy has 30 days to contest his decision in Thurston County Superior Court. So they can basically, they can sue and say, hey, we don't like your decision. But, um, oh man, I think the odds of them winning that are really long because the governor said no. Uh, and his decision was based off of a highly unusual and very rare decision by FSEC to unanimously reject this project. They never do that. They've done that only one other time that I am aware of. Um, typically, they say, yes, you can build it, but we're going to set these conditions. And usually those conditions are so high that it's not financially feasible for the company to build it. 
So they have that going against them. And then the other thing that they have going as well is that the port gave them till the end of March. So even if they win in court, how are they going to convince this new port commission who is staunchly against this project to allow them to continue their lease? I mean, they could drag this out, but I just, I don't see a way that it's actually going to happen. Could they potentially drag it out until there's another election for the port commission? I mean, feasibly they could. I mean, I think we all know that we're all well aware of like, you know, court cases dragging out for years on ends with like continuations and like endless discovery and things like that. The next guy up for election at the port is um, Jerry Oliver, who is a, he was a fan, even though he voted to also uh, make March 31st the outside precedent date. He was a staunch supporter of this project. And Oliver did that just as a show of unity, right? I think so. Yeah. And then the guy that they would have to get off of there would be, um, um, Eric LeBrant is up for election in four years. Could they drag it out for four years and then maybe find a pro-terminal candidate to win? <sighs> that's a tough, that's a tough proposition. I can't imagine that that would work. I mean, they could try, but what are the odds? I mean, we all saw how bad Chris Green lost. Chris Green only got 34% of the vote and he was for the process. So find me somebody who's going to beat Eric LeBrant that is for this terminal. So they couldn't just say they were for the process at that point. They would have to say they are for the terminal. I don't think so. I mean, I, I really think that this community is so against this project that they'll they would fight it four years from now again if they needed to. I mean, I just don't see a way that they're going to get a friendly uh, commission. So short answer, no, I don't think that's likely. Well, Damien Pizzanti, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. It's Happy to really be here. Yeah. See you later. So today we're speaking with Debbie Sanders, an accounting professor with Washington State University, Vancouver. Thanks for joining us. I'm very pleased to be here. So we're going to talk a little bit about the tax plan. It's something that everyone was really aware of the last couple months, but it's tied down just a little bit, but it's still going to impact everyone pretty soon. So can we start with how, who do you think will benefit most from this tax plan? Can you break that down for us? Um, so I did an analysis because I knew I was going to be talking with you, looking at um, just a standard situation where you have some a couple married filing jointly, two children, both of them under the age of 17, and that they would be using the standard deduction. So I looked at um, income before the standard deduction of 50,000, 120, 500,000, and a million dollars. And in looking at those with those parameters, the people at a million dollars were receiving proportionately more of a benefit than those that were at 50,000. And so that's a little different than what I think most people have been told or perceived that that benefit will most benefit, you know, be for those who are the average Vancouver resident, um, you know, who are in maybe that $75,000 income range, I believe, is what I saw most, that those people benefit most, you know, that you'll get back $2,200 or something like that in your taxes, and that's not quite accurate then. No, based on what I, uh, the parameters that I provided, um, you'd probably be at $100,000 to re be receiving $2,200 back, um, but people at a higher income are going to receive proportionately more. Okay. So when would we see these changes in our pocketbooks? Um, the IRS comes out with um, withholding tables for employers, and they've already come out with those, so you could see it as soon as your next paycheck. 
all employers are required to start using the new withholding tables by February 15th. Wow, okay. Um, and just to talk about those savings again really quickly, and those are not permanent, correct? The While well, the corporate tax deductions, that lowered rate is permanent, those for the individual are not? No, they're not. There is a, they're called um, sunset, and um, so these sunset laws will be in effect for a few years and then they will, the rules will go back to what they were prior to 2018. Okay, so you'll see that child tax credit that was doubled go back to what it was before. The standard deduction will go back to, it's $6,300? That's standard? for a, a single for person. For single, okay. And it was $12,600 um, in 2017 for married client jointly. But those are indexed for inflation, so when they come back, they won't be those numbers. They'll be higher. Oh, okay. All right. So one of the concerns expressed about this bill uh, by, the, say, the governor of Washington and others was that it would, uh, it would remove or alter the uh, state and local tax deductions. Uh, how much does it reduce this deduction, and is that going to have much of an impact on the average Washingtonian? So the state and local taxes are going to be capped at $10,000. The deduction and for those? The deduction for those is going to be capped at $10,000. Um, and so that's for both state and local income taxes and property taxes. So obviously in the state of Washington, we don't have an income tax, we only have a property tax. But because the standard deduction has been basically doubled for, again, married fine jointly, that would have been 12,600 in 2017, but now it'll be 24,000, it's probably not going to have a big impact on the average person in Washington because they wouldn't be able to itemize anymore anyway. They probably don't have enough property taxes and um, interest on their home and charitable contributions to make it over the 24000 Mary Fund jointly. So it sounds like people who would be impacted uh, by this, uh, the, the, the reduction in this deduction, uh, would be, be higher income earners, right? Yes. Um, because they are the people who would have higher property taxes because they own a more expensive home, they would have higher interest deductions, and then they would probably also be people that would be giving more in charitable contributions, so they would make it above the standard deduction, and so it would be those people that are above the standard deduction that would be harmed by this. Uh, one thing I'm wondering about is the mortgage, mortgage interest deduction has also been altered by this bill as well. Uh, I'm wondering, we have a housing market here uh, that's that's crunched. I'm wondering if this is going to have any impact on that. Is somebody trying to buy a home or trying to uh, make their mortgage payment every month? Is that is it going to affect that at all? Well, the change is, and this is um, four houses that are purchased after December 31st that have, and so if you already have a contract, that would not affect this. The change is on the um, maximum amount of mortgage that you can have on your home and the interest be deductible. So the maximum amount prior to this change in the tax law was a million dollars and then you could have an equity loan of a hundred thousand. The change in the tax law has reduced it from a million to seven hundred and fifty thousand and then there's no equity. So unless you have, uh, unless you're going to go out and buy a house that, that is going to be more than 750000 this isn't going to affect you. I want to talk a little bit about the trickle-down effect. Um, you know, this is something that we've been heard over and over that these, tax, these cuts to corporations 
Um, you know, they may seem significant. I think mean, they are. It was 35% to 21%. Is that right? Yes, it went from 35 maximum rate down to 21. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a significant cut. And so we're being told that cut is okay. It's great because then those corporations will use that money that they were paying for taxes, you know, trickle down to their employees. We'll see more hiring. We'll see higher wages. But we're also hearing that that's that trickle-down economics doesn't really work. Uh, what, what can you say about that? Um, just based on history, we have, you know, we had this concept before um, when Ronald Reagan was president, and um, historically it, did, it doesn't work. Yeah, if you look at what the, the corporations are saying, a lot of corporations are saying that what they want to do with the money that they will have is buy back stock, and that's helpful to the people who are remaining shareholders and give higher um, dividends. So some companies are talking about giving bonuses. It's not clear whether they will do that every year or this is a a one-time thing. Um, It's also not clear that there's no requirement in the law that companies will use the money for their employees or to hire more employees. There's no requirement for that. Right. It's just a presumed action that would happen. By by doing this, they're going to be good corporations and give back to their employees instead of their shareholders. Well, corporations have a lot of functions, and one of the functions is to create income for their owners, and the owners are the shareholders. Um, one of the things about the, um, the corporate tax being changed from 35 to 21. Now it's a flat tax at 21%. So there were smaller corporations used to have a lower rate. Uh, oh, so this will actually increase, increase it for smaller businesses. Yes. And so I don't think that that's being brought out, but smaller businesses will have an increase because now it's a flat tax of 21%. Is there a way for smaller businesses to reorganize so that they wouldn't pay so much taxes? Well, that's a very complicated thing because if you're already a corporation and if you want to reorganize, then you have to liquidate, and that causes two levels of tax. You have a tax at a cor- at the corporate level, and then you have a tax at the, the owner level. So um, getting out of a corporation is kind of expensive. You could switch from a regular corporation to a subchapter S corporation, um, but the rates for that are um, going to be whatever your rate is as an individual, but there are different rules that are coming in for passive entities also. That's a a very complicated question. If you're a Washingtonian, live in Washington State, and commute to Oregon, which has an income tax, how would this bill maybe affect your uh, taxes? Well, I think the most important aspect of that is that if you are um, an employee that you work, that you live in Washington, but you work in Oregon, sometimes you'll work from your home. And so you might have an office in your home, and you could take an office in your home expense. That expense is gone. So the employee business expenses that you had in 2017 are no longer available in 2018. So uh, I think that is a, a big change. And. Just to be clear, that was the um, exemption that, or the deduction that allowed people to write off things like a portion of their electric bill, their, you know, um, it's proportion of your square footage, and you know, maybe part of your phone bill, internet bill, these little things that can add up to kind of a, a sizable deduction. Right. Yes. So with the office and the home, you take a percentage of what your 
the office is to your house and then you can take expenses associated with that. Plus you might have other expenses by having, you know, that you have to have an extra computer or you have to mm -hmm. have an extra printer. Or, and so those expenses will be gone. But as far as with the Oregon income tax that Washington commuters have to pay, would they catch a break on that under this tax bill or would it be about the same or? Well, Oregon isn't changing its taxes. Um, and the amount that you could take, again, remember that, that there is a limit on your property taxes and your income taxes of $10,000. So if you are paying, which Oregon has a, a rather, if you compare it to other states, has a rather high income tax. So that would be limited. So it would fall under the $10,000, and mm -hmm. so if that's, okay. Yes, and so again, if you, um, if you are making such that you have a high Oregon tax, more than $10,000, and you're paying your property tax here in Washington, then you're only gonna have $10,000 for that. Do keep in mind that there is, the standard deduction has been um, bumped up to 24,000, so that might take care of that situation but it just really depends on a person's um, facts and circumstances. So if somebody is a higher income earner and they commute to Oregon for work, then it's possible they could have a higher tax bill. Yes, yes, because if they had, if they had enough deductions that would have put them over the $24,000, then they'll be losing. Mm -hmm. They'll be losing some of their deductions because the income tax and property taxes are limited to $10,000. So you mentioned that, that the small business tax rate is actually going to go up quite a bit, which isn't something that I think I had heard before. Uh, are there any other pieces in this tax bill that are things that could actually impact a lot of people that haven't really been talked about that you know of? Um, I'd say one thing that would impact, say, my, the students um, is that Usually, when you get a job, you move. Especially, you know, if you're if you're um, a student that's in Washington and you're going to start working in Portland, you may move to Portland. And so, we used to be able to deduct moving expenses if it was associated with the start of a um, a job. Um, that is, moving expenses are no longer deductible. And if your employer pays for your moving, that used to be um, non-taxable, and now it will be taxable. So, if people give money to charity, will that they be able to deduct the same amount, or how will that affect that? Well, again, because the standard deduction is higher, maybe uh, you won't. People will not be as willing to give because they won't be getting a deduction because they won't be able to get over the standard deduction amount. But the the group of people that will benefit the most from the change in that charitable contribution are the the wealthy because they change the maximum that you could give, which used to be 50% of your adjusted gross income, to now it is, if you give cash contributions, it's now 60% of your adjusted gross income. And so that's a, you know, all, most individuals, the average individual probably can't pay, give 50% of their adjusted gross income, but the wealthy can, and so that's gonna be a benefit to them. So is there anything else in this bill, it's a pretty sweeping bill uh, that overhauls the tax code. Is there anything in this bill that you don't think has been talked about a whole lot that you'd like to highlight here? They increased the standard deduction amount, but in doing that, they took away the personal exemptions. So they increased the standard deduction, but they took away the personal exemptions. So the personal exemptions are the amount that you get 
per person that is in your family. And in 2017, it was a little over $4,000. So if you are a family of four and you have two children that are under the age of um, 17, it probably works out about the same. But if you have a large family, particularly if you have um, children that are over the age of 17, this is really going to impact because you're not getting that four, a little bit over $4,000 per person. And so large families are going to see um, that they are hurt by this. So it's just, um, it's not that it's reduced, it's, it's eliminated? It's eliminated. Wow. So there okay. are, are no personal exemptions anymore. Well, how does that differ from the child tax credit? So the child tax credit is just for children under the age of 17. Okay? So personal exemptions, family of four, you'd get one for the, the mom, one for the dad, and one for each child. Plus you would have gotten a thousand dollars child credit for each child. Now you won't get any personal exemption amount for the, the mom and the dad. You'll get two thousand dollars per child if they're under the age of 17. But if you have a child that's still in high school at 18 or you have children that are in college, um, you used to be able to get a personal exemption for them up to as long as they were under the age of 24 and a full-time student. So those children, you're not going to receive any benefit tax-wise for them. Um, when, one of the big differences is how alimony is treated or separate maintenance, depending on which state you're living as what they call it. Um, previously, alimony was deductible to the person who paid it and it was taxable to the person who received it. Um, now it will not be deductible to the person who is paying it and not taxable to the person who is receiving it. And so that's a big change. What was the rationale for that? I don't know. Thank you so much for joining us and kind of giving us a little bit more insight into this confusing tax bill. Oh, I was glad to help. Hope, hope it was helpful. And next up, Jersey Shedlock, Columbian Breaking News reporter. For the last month, Columbian breaking news reporter Jersey Shedlock has been thinking a lot about murder in Clark County. He's taken a look at homicides in Clark County over the last year and the circumstances surrounding these deaths. And he's wrapped his findings into a story that will run this Sunday in the Columbian. Jersey, welcome to the podcast. This is your first time on, right? Yes, thank you. So, Jersey, you're new here at the Columbian. Where did you come from? Um, I came from Anchorage, Alaska. That's where I spent my entire life. Uh, I reported for uh, six years um, in Alaska, primarily at Alaska Dispatch News, which is now Anchorage Daily News. Um, there was more than enough crime to cover up there. The paper was statewide while I was working at it, so... I think it was um, last week, 24-7 Wall Street, which is an online publication, I'm not quite sure how reputable they are, but they're a news organization of some sort kind of more of an aggregate. They used federal crime data to look at uh, violent crime in the United States and they came to the conclusion that Alaska was the most dangerous state in the nation. So that just lends itself to how busy I was with the reporting up there. So so, so are you bored here with all the crime or do they do crime better in, in Alaska? I certainly feel like this is uh, based on the data a safer community and from what I've seen I think it is. Um, there's certainly crime everywhere, um, be it smaller crimes, but um, I think it's 
pretty good community to live in from what I've seen. Like there is some crime, specifically homicides here in Clark County, right? Yes. Yeah, you've been is. thinking about that a lot. Yes, in this past year, there was quite a few. Okay, so tell us about a little bit about this story that, that's running in this Sunday's Columbian. The idea is very simple. It's just an article followed by a list or a recap of the year's homicides. Um, it's something that I had done previously on a year-by-year basis. It's just an easy way that can be an interesting way to look back at the previous year, and it can also be informative um, and point to signs of whether or not this highest profile violent crime that occurs, what's going on in the community, um, can help you paint a picture. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. So how did you go about reporting this story then? Uh, I started my reporting by requesting um, a list of the homicides and some other facts about those homicides from the police departments and from the city of Vancouver. I was told that it wasn't readily available or wasn't an identifiable public record. So after that, I went to the Clark County Medical Examiner's Office and asked for a list of the previous year's deaths um, that were ruled homicides. And based on what they gave me, um, I created a spreadsheet that had things like ages of the victims, the gender, the addresses of where the deaths occurred, time of day, whether a suspect was identified and charged, among other identifiers. Is, is it, was that unusual that the law enforcement agencies here didn't have that data readily available? It seems like that should be something that they are tracking. It does. Um, I think these are things the major crimes units within uh, law enforcement agencies are aware of, whether or not they actually keep like an active list that's um, up in the air. They should be able to get us something, I believe, um, fairly easy as they work these cases, but um, I had not had difficulty asking for something like this in the past, but I had done so for years, and I believe my um, colleagues that came for me did the same. So maybe it was just where I came from, the agencies were used to being requested something like this. And it's also something you know we can always do as we move forward. Next year, I won't have to build this database all at once because I'll be keeping track of all the murders throughout the year. So it'll be easier in the future. Did it sound like they never had this request before? It certainly made it's it certainly sounded like that. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Whether or not I didn't f phrase my request correctly because they make you be very specific, that's always a question too. But um, granted, that you know people are curious about these types of crimes in their communities. The information. I think is available. Um, so when you got these records, was there anything that hadn't been reported previously? Was there anything that hadn't been in the Columbian archives or any, any new information as far as with these murders? I don't believe so. I think we covered each and every homicide that happened this year, which is how I was able to verify the list in uh, K 
conjunction with asking the law enforcement agencies once I had compiled the list, does this look accurate to do to you? And they confirmed it. So, but no, um, nothing was surprising. Um, I think we covered everything well, and it was just a matter of looking into where these instances now stand in terms of uh, criminal charges and whether or not um, anything had to be wrapped up, which uh, is included in the story. So was there anything uh, surprising about what you got from these records? Well, without giving too much away, I can say that it doesn't appear there was a common thread in the murders, and that comes from the interpretation of local criminal justice officials like the prosecutor's office, the police department, and the sheriff's office. So if you'd like to know more about why they believe such, um, people can read the story. And that's our podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find the podcast just about anywhere you find podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. We post it straight to the Columbia's website the first Thursday of each month. So you can find it basically everywhere. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you later.